Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Uh, Today is Kingdom Culture Sunday, and that means that we're talking about our core values as a church, what's important to us and what's important in the kingdom of God that we need to be focused on. Let's pray. We're going to get into it together. Father, I just thank you so much for the power of your Holy Spirit that is here in this moment with us. I thank you, Lord, that all of us are here, not by accident, but by intentional divine design. And we're here today, oh God, not just to go through the motions of religious ritual, but to have an encounter with the living God himself. Holy Spirit, would you come and renew minds, transform hearts, and heal sick bodies? Would you come, O God, and give us your perspective on our earthly reality? Your word says your thoughts aren't our thoughts and your ways aren't our ways, but we want your thoughts to become our thoughts. We want your ways to be our ways. God, we honor you in this place. We honor your word. Come now and speak. Let your word be living and active in our hearts. We know it already is, but let it be active and living in our hearts. And God will give you all the glory and honor for what you do as a result of this word. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. 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 Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and verse 33. A powerful passage of scripture where we look at the impact of culture in the early church. And the Bible says in verse 32, Acts 4, it says, Now the full number of those who believed, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Two young fish were swimming in the ocean. And as they swam, they met an older fish swimming in the opposite direction. And the older fish sort of nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim on for a little bit. And eventually, one of them looks over at the other with a bewildered look and says to the other, What the heck is water? Culture is a bit like water if you're a fish. It's all around us. It's in everything we say, it's in everything we think, it's in everything that we do. Yet we don't often notice it precisely because it's everywhere. I can remember in university, one of the best subjects I studied was cultural anthropology. And in fact, I stumbled into it as the last elective that was available to choose. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And uh, I didn't really want to do it, but I sort of had to do it. And I'm thinking, what is this about? So I go into this subject, and little did I realize it's one of the best subjects that you could study when it comes to all issues of leadership and working with people in whatever industry, particularly as it relates to ministry in the local church, because it's a subject that looks at how people organize and shape the world around them into culture. You see, from governments to families, from churches to businesses, the X factor of any group of people and the X factor of any organization is culture. And so we need to understand what it is. What is culture? Well, culture is the collective ideas, customs, and beliefs that shape group behavior. 
Culture is like the lens through which you view life. Another way of saying uh, that lens or, or culture is worldview. And so every one of us looks at life through our worldview, through the lens of our upbringing, the lens of relationships that we've built, the lens through our education or lack of, the um, uh, nation or city or town that we were raised in. All of us bring our worldview of life and our conclusions about church and God and truth and society and people to bear based upon whether those are accurate or inaccurate. All of those things are based upon our worldview. If you change your lens, you change your life. If you change the way you look at God and church and the Bible and society, you change how you live your life. Culture is something that's actually passed down from one generation to the next, through words, through actions, through rituals, and through objects. And so all of us are products of our family of origin, and we think that our family of origin is normal. We don't understand that every family has a particular culture, and then you meet another family, or you meet your spouse, or you meet someone you're dating, and you realize my family may not be normal, and and their family may be weird, or what is that about? And then you realize it's the clash of cultures. Even in their own city, own community, own workplace is the clash of cultures. The root Latin word for culture is cultura, and it means to till or plough the land for crops. It's an agricultural term, and it really means to cultivate land to become fruitful. Now, as you probably imagine, I'm not a massive horticulturalist, but I do know the difference between tilling and ploughing. To till the soil as a farmer would is to casually sift the topsoil. They don't really get underneath the topsoil to the issues of health and well-being in the soil underneath, but they look at surface issues. Many people in their lives, when they recognize there's a need for change, simply look at the symptoms and the surface issues, and they try and change those uh, issues by dealing with the symptoms. But if you're going to bring lasting change in a church culture and to your own life and heart, we've got to get to the root causes the systemic causes as to why this issue is in our lives. The same is in church life. Plowing is different to tilling. Plowing is where we forcefully turn over the soil to get to the soil underneath to actually remove the toxicity and the issues that will stop that seed from producing harvest. And so as a farmer would plow the soil, turn over the soil to get to the issues of toxicity so that the seed can produce a harvest, we as a body of Christ... We as leaders, we as a community of volunteers, we as God's people have got to identify and remove any toxicity in the culture of our hearts or the culture of the church that is going to spoil the seed of God's Word from producing fruit in our lives. That's what the parable of the sower is all about. 
the parable of the sower talks about a seed and it talks about soil. The seed is God's word. The soil is your heart and my heart. And based upon the health and condition of the soil of our hearts will determine whether that seed produces fruit in our life. You and I are part of co-laboring and partnering with God to cultivate the culture of our own hearts, the culture of our church, so that the seed of God's Word can produce fruit. This is what I've learned. The seed of God's Word works in Melbourne as it works in Sydney, well, sometimes, as it works in San Francisco, as it works in Bangkok right now at Numa Church, as it works in Numa, Perth. It's amazing. You go to Singapore, you go to Europe, the seed of God's Word works. The seed of God even works in Adelaide. I know it's a crazy thing. The seed works. The issue is, what is the soil, the culture of our hearts? Is it healthy? Is it in condition to receive the seed so that it can produce fruit in our lives? Galatians 5.9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. All it takes is a little for that to filter through and saturate the entire lump of dough. Song of Songs 2.15 says, catch the little foxes, the little foxes that spoiled the vineyard. I don't know about you, but when you see huge things, scandals, all sorts of things, it didn't just begin with the big, it was little by little. It was the little foxes, it was the little leaven. And I want to tell you today in our lives, in relationships, and when it comes to the life of the church, it's the little things that will undermine the big things that God wants to do in our lives and in our hearts. And, and so you say, well, what are some of those little foxes that we need to be aware of? One of those little foxes in the life of the church is gossip. Every church has an element of this, but I want to tell you, if we're going to guard the culture, kingdom culture of this church this year, let us be a people that speak well of each other. And if there is an issue that we need to deal with and confront, we care enough to speak the truth in love, to confront in Matthew 18 relationship, and we don't gossip and slander. One of the values on our staff team is we will not slander behind someone's back or in their face. We will actually sit down and care enough to confront the issue. It's amazing how just that one little fox, once you are aware of it and deal with it, it will promote unity more than anything else. Disunity is a little fox. Complacency on our spiritual life, self-centeredness, stinginess, pride, all of these things reflect the culture of the world. They reflect the culture of some of our workplaces, university campuses, uh, airports, the, the, the people we encounter in business and in the corporate sector. And you may say, well, that's a very noble thing to want to change those things in the life of the church. But it is naive to think that we can actually counter that because of the pervasive nature of the spiritual darkness that's in the world. And yet I want to counter that by saying the entire gospel of the kingdom of God is counter-cultural. The message that Jesus came to preach was totally counterintuitive to the spirit of the world that we live in. Jesus would say things like John 10.10, 10, the thief representing the devil, the adversary of this world, comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come, but I have come, I'm countering that, I have come so that you and I may have fullness and abundance of life. 
He said in John 16, in this world, in the culture of this world, there will be tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Everything that Jesus preached and taught was about countering the culture of darkness and the spiritual pervasiveness of sin and fallenness to give us a brilliant picture of the Father and of the kingdom of God and call you and I into a reconciled relationship with the Father, living as kingdom sons and daughters in a new earthly family called the Church of Jesus Christ. We are called to be counter-cultural. The Netherlands is a phenomenon there where they grow 85% of the world's supply of tulips. And I know you came to church today to know that fact. And, and so you say, well, that's great. And the interesting thing about that fact is that the climate of the Netherlands is not conducive to growing tulips. So how do they do it? Well, they've built greenhouses all over the country with the right climate, the right nutrients in the soil, the right amount of hydration, the right this, the right that. And because the right environment is cultivated, even though the climate's not conducive to growing tulips, there is an avalanche and supply, a global supply of tulips all across the earth. And I thought that'll preach because we live in a world where the climate of the spirit of this world is not conducive to the advancement of God's kingdom and yet when you and I plant ourselves in the kingdom of God and we define and design intentionally those kingdom values into the soil of our hearts, into the soil of the church, that which seems impossible to grow begins to grow, begins to advance. It begins to move forward. Why does culture matter in a church? Because culture is to a church what soil is to a plant. If the soil's contaminated, living things die. If the soil is healthy, everything living flourishes. And you need to know that just like every family, every business, every school, every church has a culture that either helps it or hinders it from growth. And how we partner with that or how we identify certain issues that would undermine that culture depends upon whether or not that fruitfulness or growth comes through us or is hindered by us. It doesn't even actually matter how clear the vision is or how solid the strategy is or how effective the teaching or ministry is that a church does. If the culture is unhealthy, if the culture is toxic in how we relate to each other and honour each other and carry the kingdom in our own lives, the vision, no matter how clear and compelling, will not live. It won't produce fruit. It won't make a difference because it's undermined by an unhealthy culture. I've learned that culture never automatically trends up. Have you discovered that? You always have to tend to it. It's not like it's always just automatically heading north on the graph. You have to pay attention to it because culture always defaults to the lowest common denominator of our fallenness and our sin and our brokenness. And so part of the role of a community of faith and leadership and volunteer uh, leaders, et cetera, et cetera, is to ensure and make sure that we're not just communicating, but we're paying attention to the culture. Because if we don't define it and we don't design it, it's not going to trend up. 
Now, praise God, in the life of this church, we're seeing fruit and evidence of the fact that kingdom culture is being sown into the soil of people's hearts, and there is an increasing ownership and navigation with all things kingdom culture. And when we go to the Word of God, we also see this in action in the early church. In Acts 4.32, we see a healthy culture in action. The New Testament church had a clearly defined, apostolically designed kingdom culture. What do we read in this text? Firstly, the full number of believers were of one heart and soul. Wouldn't it be amazing if the church of Jesus Christ had a unity of the faith, we were of one heart and soul. There's so many different, you sort of almost like, uh, you know, sections and divisions and this and schisms and all sorts of things. It's like just the, the, the reason fivefold ministry is given is to bring the, the body of Christ into fullness and maturity of unity of faith the full measure of who Jesus is. And in the early church, the apostolic leadership of the house were building in such a way that the early church were of one heart and soul. That tells me there was unity of culture. Not only that, but they had everything in common. That didn't mean they all thought the same, but it definitely did mean that there was this commonness. They were they were unified in community around the body of Christ, around the person of Jesus, around the sacraments, around the Word of God, around the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, there was a generosity in their culture. Wouldn't it be awesome if every time we came to gather together for corporate worship uh, here and at life groups on Wednesdays, that we all came to give something away? In a consumer world, where people go somewhere to receive something from them, it would be countercultural to actually come with an attitude and heart that says, I'm looking for someone to bless today. I'm looking for someone to give something away to. I'm going to give away a word. I'm going to give away a, 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 a cash gift to someone. I'm going to give away a, a, a baked cake, or I'm going to give away a, a free meal at a restaurant. I'm going to give something away. Imagine if we could cultivate the sort of culture where there was such a giving heart, a giving spirit, you wouldn't be able to build buildings big enough. To, to, to house the people that would want to be a part of a church like that. And yet that was what was so contagious about the early church. They had such a kingdom culture and a unity around that, that that actually says that they had nothing to, la- to, to need for because they shared a generosity of culture. The Bible also says, and it just compounds one layer after the other, that great power was in the apostles' testimony that tells me they had a supernatural culture. And so they were uh, so unified and there was such a generosity that as the apostles and leaders and people of God testified to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was a sign and a wonder about what they were doing. And not only that, the text says great grace, not little grace, not itty bitty grace, not a small amount of grace, great grace was upon them all. This tells me that the culture of the early church had the mark of divine favor upon it. There was favor. I've learned favor, God's favor can do for you in a moment what your best efforts throughout a lifetime could never do. I am a product of God's divine unmerited favor. Is there anybody else in the room here today? I'm telling you, things have happened in my life. I go, I am not that clever. I'm not that intelligent. I don't know how that happened. All I know is thank you, God, for great grace. 
I am praying that upon your life and our life and this community of faith, great grace is upon us as we move into a new year. But it's only going to be like that, not just because that's God's intention. God's intention is always great grace. His grace is sufficient for you. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. The issue is our willingness to partner and co-labor with his kingdom culture. So what must define the culture of our church more than anything else? It's the values of the kingdom of God. Not the values of some corporate organization or the values of the senior leader. The values of the kingdom as revealed in the word. When Jesus came preaching in Matthew 4, 17, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that word repentance is not just about feeling remorseful or shame because of some wrongdoing. It's about changing your thinking. So in other words, if you and I are going to access the reality of the kingdom of God that Jesus came preaching, we're going to need to change our thinking. We're going to need a renewal of our minds. And this is where the truth of God's word comes in. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule and the reign of God in the earthly realm. It's wherever the will of King Jesus is and has absolute authority and control. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to become like a little child. There's got to be a heart. What's a little child's heart? Curious, humble, full of faith and trusting. So if you're going to access the kingdom, it requires a change of thinking and it requires childlike faith. And then to live in the kingdom is to come under the redemptive rule and reign of Jesus as Lord of our lives. Not what my feelings say, not what the media says, not what Hollywood says, not what some celebrity superstar says, what the bright and morning star says, King Jesus. Because what King Jesus says goes. He's perfect in every way. And the Bible says, Jesus taught the the parables of the kingdom is that we would pursue the kingdom of God, the redemptive rule and reign of Jesus as a costly pearl or a hidden treasure that you would uh, uh, spend everything for. You would uh, give everything away for that costly pearl. You would do everything you could to get that truth, that treasure. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he gives us example after example of kingdom values. He spends exorbitant time to demonstrate what the kingdom looks like. And then when you read the book of Acts, Acts 2 onwards, what you're looking at is a church that is putting into practice the values of the kingdom of God in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They're putting it into action. And so, it's so important that we understand God hasn't asked us to reinvent the wheel. He's asked us to follow the pattern of the kingdom of God. In Greek mythology, Prometheus was a uh, chameleon who could change his identity to trick people in changing and morphing into various items and objects and things and animals. And one day, as the legend goes, he changed into so many different things He couldn't find his way back to who he was because he forgot who he originally was. This happens in churches and believers' lives all the time. If we don't anchor ourselves to God's Word as our foundation, we can end up building Promethean ministries. 
a Promethean church where we morph and flex to the shifting sands of culture around us and the people of the world come into the church and they don't notice any difference between the war games of their workplace and what's going on in church life. But Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. There should be a redemptive difference about the church of God and the people of God and the kingdom of God to the chaos of the world around us. And so once we lose our biblical bearings, we have no idea who we are. Churches become personality-driven or imitation-driven of the most successful thing apparently in town. Or worse yet, we syncretize to the shifting sands of opinion in the media and the culture around us and the church gets absorbed into popular think of what's going on in the world around us. I want to tell us today that the devil is a liar. The kingdom of God sets the agenda for the church because the church is the vehicle of the kingdom of God. Everything we do is to build the culture of the kingdom of God. So with all of that as our foundation and with that in mind, what are our kingdom culture values? Firstly, number one, prayer fuels power. I like this one. Prayer fuels power. This is where we ask the question, have you prayed about it? Have you found yourself like me sometimes? Please identify with me. Um, Have you found yourself like me sometimes talking about it, complaining about it, phoning a friend about it, you know, just worrying about it? And then you realise, I haven't actually prayed about it. Wouldn't it be amazing that instead of doing all that stuff and putting ourselves under unnecessary duress, we immediately go to prayer? There was an incident just, you know, to do with something we're doing in the life of the church and ministry and we're trying to make all this thing happen and, and, and things weren't a bit clunky and weren't really coming together, stopped and prayed and in 24 hours it all shifted. Because everything that follows prayer just happens to work. Let's make prayer our first response, not our last resort. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. I love it when we're gathered together. And even you look around the room today, there are people from every nation, every ethnic group, but together we're in the house of God. This is a house of prayer for all nations. When we gather together at prayer power, when we pray in our life groups, when we pray in the services, we're not just simply just mouthing empty words. The supply line of power is being ushered in, is being connected up. There's a heavenly download. There's a link to the heaven heavenly hosts that God is actually wanting to do in our lives. But for a lack of prayer, uh, prayer, there is a lack of power. And so the lack is not on God's end. Often the lack is on ours. There are some things that will only be driven out by prayer. You know, in World War II, the Nazi U-boats would attack the Allied supply ships because they knew, cut off the supply line of food, military personnel, equipment, munitions, you can cut off the battle at the front line, you can overcome the allied armies. The enemy is not dumb, he's very strategic. What's the first thing to go when you're under stress and pressure? Your prayer life, your devotional life. But it should be the thing that actually increases. I find the more spiritual warfare and pressure that comes, the more I've got to run to the prayer closet. But what if we just live there? What if prayer was the air that we breathe? Prayer is the supply line of power to your life. Number two, 
God's word is our foundation. This is where we ask the question, what does God's word say about that? And this is really important right now in our culture and day and age where everyone's like, oh, that's wonderful that that's your truth. As if there were multiple versions of truth. We hear it all the time. Or oh, if that's your truth, that's amazing, that's wonderful. But, but God's word isn't like that. God's word doesn't call us to that. Jesus says really outrageous claims like, I am the way, the truth and the life. Very exclusive. And we say, how dare he make such a claim? Well, either he's totally crazy and mad or he's God. And because he's God and that's not just attested to spiritually by your faith or linguistically by the word of God, but historically with an empty tomb, then if that's true... I have got to make a choice. Am I going to live by my opinion or the opinions of the media or the world or am I going to live by the truth of what Jesus says and what God's Word says? Because man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds by the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is breathed, inspired by God. It's profitable. You want a profit margin in your life? Get into the Word. I'm talking about a spiritual profit. Get into the Word. It's profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word is our foundation. It's the plumb line that we align our lives by. And if we don't understand something, we ask for help. We say, hey, can you show me what this means? We study it. We read it. We say, Holy Spirit, illuminate this scripture to me. I'm going to do a a class at Newman College. Join a life group. I'm going to lean into the teaching of the Word. And Holy Spirit, I want you to illuminate what your Word is saying. Thirdly, kingdom value is making disciples is not optional. We talked about this last week. It's where we ask the question, who are you discipling? In a consumer-oriented world, we're often asking, well, who's mentoring me? Who's training me? You can go and get a personal trainer for your fitness, a nutritionist for for your diet. You can go and find someone to service the need that's in your life And yet the Christianity in the kingdom of God says, yes, come to your saviour for salvation, but also come to your Lord for discipleship. And then out of the context of you taking responsibility for your personal growth, we are now called to go and disciple others. I've learned the best way to to learn something is to teach it to somebody else. Because if I'm going to teach it or disciple somebody else in it, I've got to internalise it. I've got to grow in this myself. I've got to allow this to become a part of who I am in my thinking and in my relationships and in my life if it's going to be something that I have have the credibility to pass on to others. And so I just encourage you to make sure you connect to Numa Discipleship on a Wednesday night. Numa Discipleship is 24-7, but we have an active point of engagement for you and I every single week that on Sundays we gather together for corporate worship and we celebrate the goodness of God. We have the Word of God uh, fed to us, but then also we go 24-7 and we go and make disciples of all nations. 
For too long, churches have been busy with religious activity, but ignoring the very thing that Jesus has asked us to do, and that is to go and make disciples of all nations. It's not optional, it's a command. Number four, miracles are normal. This is where we ask the question, is the supernatural part of my daily experience? This is where we say, is a miraculous supernatural kingdom lifestyle a a normal part of my life or is it an exception? Now, when we often approach this question, we we sort of have the, the dude in the white suit at the rally on TV, sort of the weird, ooky, spooky thing in mind. And whilst God can use that, we think that's what the supernatural looks like. And we fail to connect that the supernatural is very natural. And and, and God wants it to be outworked in your daily life, at the kindergarten, at the cafe, in your workplace, in the sporting club, in your neighborhood, in your relationships, and in your family. Because God never designed his kingdom to be something that is inaccessible to people. The kingdom, the supernatural lifestyle is accessible to every single one of us. But sometimes we think, oh, that's just for the pastor or this person or the televangelist. And it just gets weird. And I want to tell you today that the the miracle working power of the kingdom of God is accessible to every single person in this room. wonder if you've ever been at a um, restaurant where... You're trying to order stuff off the menu and they frustratingly say, oh, no, we've run out of that. Oh, no, sorry, that's not here anymore. I was at a restaurant one time. I ordered three things. All three things were off the menu. So I'm like, why am I even reading this menu? I mean, you tell me. You tell me what I can have. What can I eat off this menu? There's only five things on the menu. What can I have? And sometimes the church when it doesn't embrace the miraculous power that is available in the Holy Spirit, tells the world, oh, I know that Jesus said even greater works than these will you do. I know that he healed the sick and I know that he opened blind eyes and opened deaf ears and he raised the dead, cast out devils, but that's no longer on the menu. And we wonder why the world has an inferior view of who Jesus is. The devil is a liar. I'm here to tell you miracles are still on the menu of God's word. There is a supernatural lifestyle there is kingdom power. The Bible says in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power. Dunamis, dynamic, dynamite power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, literally translated martyrs, even unto death. This secret source of the kingdom, the power of the Holy Spirit will sustain your witness even unto death. So how do persecuted Christians maintain such a witness of faith? The power of the Holy Spirit. It's the X factor of the kingdom of God. You bring the word and the spirit together and you have kingdom. And you don't need to be a person on a platform with a microphone to move in the power of God. You just need to have faith. You just need to be someone who's willing to step out and make a mistake and pick yourself up and keep stepping out. You just need to be willing to say, you know what? If it's on the menu, I can order it. If it's available to me, I can believe that when I lay hands on this person, I don't fully understand it all, but I trust your word. God, would you heal this person right now? God, I don't fully understand all the inner workings of prophecy, but I feel inspired to encourage someone. They're the beginning seeds of prophecy. And then as we teach you and disciple you how to mature in that, it becomes more effective and specific and focused and intentional and building up people. 
miracles are normal. Is this helping anyone today? It's hot up here under these lights. Number five, love gives generously. This is where we ask the question, am I growing in generosity? Do you know the closer we get to Jesus, the more generous we should become? Why is it that some of the most cranky people are people who have been hanging around Jesus a long time? And I've got to ask the question, are you just hanging around church or are you hanging around Jesus? Because if you just hang around church, you probably will get cranky. (laughs) But if you hang around Jesus in the church, you're going to become more like him. Do you know that the church should be a place of joy and laughter? Why? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And there may be some stuff in your life right now. You say, well, that doesn't make me too happy. But joy goes beyond. It endures when circumstances don't, are not conducive to your happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is relational. Put that on Insta. Uh, seriously, joy is relational. Joy is about the revelation of the person that you're in relationship with. And the more we get around Jesus, the more generous we should become. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave. You are never more like God than when you give. So the more Christ-like we become... And the more we say, I love you, Jesus, I love your house, I love my family, I love us, there should be this evidence of generosity increasing. We sing, oh God, I love you, and this and that. It's like we're singing, you know, sort of, imagine if you just sang romantic love songs on the radio to your spouse, but you never actually showed them that you love them. He said, look, I said I love you on our wedding day. Isn't that enough? I mean, when we got saved and you, you saved me, Jesus, and I said, I love you forever. Uh, I, I don't, what do you mean I'm actually supposed to show you that I love you? And God's like, well, kind of, kind of. I mean, I gave you my one and only son. I didn't find an angel with a mangy wing and say, oh, you'll do. Just... I gave you my very best wife because I loved you. I love this world. I didn't withhold anything. Let's not be a withholding church. Let's be a generous church because all I'm asking for is integrity in our confession, integrity in our love. Love gives generously. Number six, freedom is a responsibility. This is where we ask the question, how am I stewarding my freedom? Really important in this day and age. Historically, the church has taken the liberty and the freedom that is found in Jesus and turned it into a license to sin and indulge the flesh and the sinful nature and said, well, it's all under grace, so it's all good. I can just come back, ask forgiveness, and it's all okay. Or they've taken the liberty that we have, where the Spirit is, there is liberty, and they've taken that liberty and turned it into legalism and put rules and regulations on the church that God has not put upon the church. This is what the Pharisees did. It got Jesus hot under the collar. It should get us hot under the collar. There's one thing that that gets me going, is like a heat-seeking missile, is religion. I can smell it from a thousand paces away. Because I was raised in an environment, not in my family and not in my parents' church, but in a movement where religion was the evidence, regulations were the evidence of your spirituality and it just wasn't true. 
And so, the, 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 you know, people say, well, you can't dance and you can't do this and what's all this hand raising and clapping and you can't wear this and do this and this. And, and there's wisdom and there's order. The Bible says everything should be done decently and in order. But I'm telling you, when you come to Jesus, he sets you free and there is liberty. But with that liberty comes responsibility, particularly as it applies to how you conduct your life. And so Galatians 5.13 says you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We live in a society that attacks any worldview, particularly in the church, that restricts me doing what I want to do. And so the world holds in contempt. What do you mean I can't sleep with whoever I want to sleep with? What do you mean I can't do this and that with my finances? What do you mean that I can't choose to be this or that and live my life? How dare you? And we hold in contempt. And if our minds aren't renewed to the truth of what it means to be free in Christ, we can bring that mindset into the church. And we say, how dare you, pastor, speak to me about my financial stewardship? I mean, who do you think you are? You haven't worked for all those hard-earned pennies. And, 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 and what do you mean that you're calling me to live a, a pure and holy, set-apart life? What, 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 what is that about? Listen, true freedom isn't doing what you want. True freedom is following Jesus. Because if you simply do what you want, the Bible says you're a slave to sin. But we are slaves to righteousness because John 8 tells us if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The world thinks be what you want, do what you want to do, and it's all cool. But they don't understand they're more slaves to the wickedness and deception of their own heart than they are free to the things of God that God's Word teaches. Lastly, number seven, church is a covenant family. This is where we ask the question, am I growing in a sense of belonging? You need to know today that God designed you to belong. There's a reason why. Why I find it fascinating when I go to sporting events and, you know, concerts with musicians and productions, all sorts of things. You have fans who all identify themselves with certain colours and certain clothing and there's all sorts of different social clubs and sporting clubs and all these things. You know what? This is all indicative of people are searching for somewhere to belong. Because you are wired to belong somewhere. And the the number one group organization on family on the planet that God designed for every person to belong to was God's earthly family called the church. I remember being in Paris several years ago. I was watching the Tour de France with 250,000 other spectators. And I'm standing there and waiting for six hours for cyclists to go by in 10 seconds. And I'm like, investment and payoff. I'm not sure. And as I'm standing there, you know, you get to, I like people. I'm talking to people. I'm talking. And, and you, after you talk for three hours with this person, you sort of turn to the next person and talk to them. And this uh, lady introduces herself literally in the first few sentences of the conversation. I'm a, uh, a sex therapist, atheist, feminist. This is literally what she she introduced herself as, right? I'm like, wow. I didn't show my face like, wow. I'm just like, 
okay. And, and she says, I've been in the red light district of Amsterdam and I've been studying my master's in sex therapy and I've been discovering amazing things. I said, I bet you have. And, and, and so I didn't want her to unpack what she's been learning. Um, but as we're talking, she goes, what do you do? And I'm like, I literally said, you don't want to know. I'm not telling you. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm not telling you. You really don't want to know. I don't want this conversation to be spoiled right now. And I shared with her that I'm a follower of Christ and I'm on a tour of Europe speaking at a number of conferences and churches and things got quiet for a few minutes. And then she started to open up. Growing up in church, her parents were elders, had a very, very difficult experience in church, totally ran away from it. And she paused and said this, the greatest example of community I've ever seen in my life is the local church. She said, there's something very appealing about it. And here I am on the other side of the world with an atheist sex therapist feminist. And I've got no issue with necessarily all those things, but it's like, she identifies the local church yeah. is where people can find a place to belong. We're going to make sure we don't treat the local church like a hotel, but we treat it like a home that we're building family in. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That means if you're a son and daughter of God, you have access. You belong. God is building himself a family on earth. What began with Abraham now includes us because by faith we're the offspring of Abraham. God is building himself an earthly family and we are it. We are the church. And this is what I've learned. Family may disagree over preferences, but we don't disagree and disunify over convictions. One of the things we've got to guard against in a culture, particularly as we've come out the last two years, is that we turn preferences into convictions and opinions into biblical truths and we actually divide. Now, you're allowed to have a different preference, but let's be aligned with kingdom convictions. Let's be aligned with kingdom values. Healthy families, functional families, navigate differences with grace and wisdom and emotional maturity. And so if there is something to navigate, let's do it in truth and love and grace and wisdom. But let's care enough to work it through together. A lot of families are so broken, they don't know how to do conflict, how to navigate differences, and so they cut and run. That is not the covenant family of God. We work it through, we talk it through, we navigate it. And this is what I've learned. When church is family, it reproduces something very different to when church is a business or when church is an organisation. When church is a business, it reproduces consumers, customers. When church is an organisation, it reproduces employees and hirelings. But when a church is family, it reproduces sons and daughters and uncles and aunties and siblings and brothers and sisters in Christ. And God has called us to be a covenant family where there are hopefully healthy spiritual parents building a spiritual family. And together we are a covenant family. Can you imagine with me what the world would look like, what Numa Church would look like if we really imbibed of these kingdom cultures? Because when the culture of the kingdom becomes the culture of the local church, everything changes. 
The future changes, your family changes, your life changes, your business, everything changes. In 1904, in the Welsh Revival, a tourist was visiting to go and visit the revival. He wanted to see this great place where all these amazing supernatural things were happening. And he was on the train and he asked the train conductor, where's the revival? Where's all these amazing miracles and things that are happening? And the train conductor replied back, just keep walking, you'll know. I thought about that and thought, wouldn't it be amazing because I'm believing and contending for the day when visitors and guests and people meet you as you're planted in this church and a part of the culture of the kingdom of this house and they ask you, I've heard about what God is doing here. I've heard about what the, the, the work of the kingdom here and lives are being changed. What, what is the X factor? Why is that? Your response simply is just keep walking. You'll know. And when that happens, that's when kingdom culture becomes a part of the air that we breathe. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.